As of today in Minnesota, we've completed our first month of stay-at-home orders for non-essential workers. Life now has a new rhythm, routine, and reality. Home offices and homeschooling, sanitizers and six feet of spacing, video chats and virtual gatherings. And at the core of all of this is the challenge of adapting to change. For many of us, an important change is how we eat, buy food, and feed our families. We put our masks on and cautiously weave our way down the aisles of the grocery store. Maybe we stop and think about all the people it takes to stock our food shelves, from those who produce our food all the way up the chain to how our food is processed, distributed, and consumed. I'm John Finnegan, Dean of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. This week, we explore how this pandemic is affecting our complex food chain, What's happening now, and what can we expect down the road? What are the strengths and vulnerabilities of our food delivery system? And what can we learn from those who know this system well? Today is April 24th, 2020, and this episode is called A Strained Food Chain. So my name is Brian Chesbo, and we farm in the western portions of Grant County, Minnesota, kind of west central Minnesota. We uh, are on a third generation farm, and we farm corn and soybeans and sugar beets and wheat. My name is Michael Joyce, and I'm reporting this series. I start this story with Brian for two reasons. First, most stories about food start on a farm. Second, most stories about food don't stay on the farm. They quickly become epic tales crisscrossing the world, driven by a huge cast of characters, and influencing nearly every aspect of our society. Our food system is global, interconnected, and interdependent. Brian's farm is a good example. Well, our soybeans in western Minnesota and the Dakotas predominantly go to the Pacific Northwest for exports throughout the world, but Asian markets being a key part of that. In Asia, most of those soybeans are used for hog feed. More on the pork industry later. And ironically enough, a lot of the chemicals Brian uses to grow those soybeans come from Asia. That's the interdependence I alluded to earlier. And then there's corn. Of course, the U.S. corn industry is it's a big industry, and as the biofuel markets have evolved due to uh, the renewable fuel standard and how that's grown, a lot of the demand for corn and soybeans, specifically for corn, has shifted towards those markets. About 40% of where our corn uh, goes goes directly to ethanol. So there's the interconnectedness I mentioned. With less people driving during this pandemic, there goes a big chunk of the corn ethanol market, and therefore Brian's income. In other words, here's a father of two, farming in the southern Red River Valley, in a county of about 6,000 people and not a single stoplight, and his livelihood is directly and indirectly connected with the livelihoods of folks in China, the Middle East, and you and I. It really is an intricately orchestrated system that a lot of multi-generational small farms are being a part of in terms of how that food gets from their farms all the way to the plates of the consumers. Remember that phrase, intricately orchestrated system, because it's vital to understanding both the food chain and food security. A big link in that chain is milk. 
since COVID has become in the public eye and, and the pandemic that it is, we, we've seen probably about a 30 to 40% reduction in milk prices. And, and that translates through to pork and beef as well. Greg Sabalik is a fourth generation farmer in Western Minnesota with a 500 cow dairy. He hasn't dumped any milk, but I asked him why some people are starting to. Essentially, it's our logistics and supply chain uh, bottleneck. So we, we become so specialized as an industry, and I'm going to reference dairy here, where one plant is built and that plant is efficient as it possibly can be. So that plant is going to just bottle milk for, say, school cartons, the little eight-ounce paper cartons or what plastic cartons that, uh, that school children drink. So once that plant basically has all its fridge space full, there's nowhere else to go with that milk. So then that trickles down to the farm where if they're picking up milk for that purpose, there's nowhere to put it and they're forcing them to dump it. Milk is divided into four classes depending on what it's going to be processed into. Class one is fluid milk for drinking and only a small part of what milk is used for. Class two is soft manufactured products like ice cream, sour cream, and yogurt. Class three, where most of Greg's milk goes, is cheese and cheese powders. And class four is mostly butter. The processing and distribution of these classes are tailored to either the food service industry, like restaurants and institutional food, or to the retail industry, mostly grocery stores. It's close to a 50-50 split, with half going to food service in bulk quantities and half packaged for us to buy in the grocery store. And that arrangement creates a problem for the plants that fill those 8-ounce milk cartons. The market for individual servings disappeared when the schools and cafes closed. That plant cannot go and, and switch overnight or even in a short amount of time to bottling plastic gallon jugs that the, the, the home consumer wants. Then the same thing on dairy products, cheese, sour creams, etc. You know, when the retail sector or the food service sector, excuse me, shut down, restaurants, schools, colleges, uh, etc. That type, you know, they they buy shredded cheese in large, we'll say, 30-pound bags. Well, same same process. Once their fridge and storage is full, they have nowhere to go with their product, and it forces the milk to be dumped. And again, to switch those lines over to consumer size, you know, one, two-pound bags. That takes months, it's costly, it's just not, not happening. Not happening because milk processing and distribution are highly specialized, which means neither adaptable or nimble in the face of a disruption like COVID. Other than responsiveness, or lack thereof, another way to think of vulnerabilities in the food chain has to do with risk. Where are the risks right now? The risks seem to be where people congregate, and also where people are moving or moving or migrating. Philip Brooks worked in food distribution, mostly fresh produce, for nearly 50 years. I'll give you an example. There's in a few weeks in June, the cherry harvest will start. And they'll go from no people employed to 550 people employed within one week in just one uh, cherry orchard plus the people in the plant to pack the cherries, to refrigerate them, and so forth. And so these people will come from all over. They'll migrate from Mexico and from other parts, and they'll travel with the crop, travel north. Many of them are in California now with the cherry harvest, and they'll migrate up to Washington State to work on that harvest. And, and they're housed in uh, bunkhouses six weeks in Washington, and then they'll travel on to something else. 
maybe cycle to apples in California than back north. Migrant workers can neither stay at home or avoid crowds, a perfect setup for both catching and spreading the virus. Even more precarious is working shoulder-to-shoulder in meatpacking plants. Last week, a meatpacking plant with nearly 4,000 employees closed in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Over 600 people linked to the plant, mostly immigrants, have tested positive for coronavirus. This week, another 2,000 meatpackers were laid off at a Worthington, Minnesota plant because of a spike in cases. Those two plants alone account for roughly 10% of the country's pork production. The ripple effects are potentially massive, including these towns becoming COVID hotspots, devastated local economies, and the price of hogs going down, while the price of pork goes up. And Daniel Sumner, a professor of agricultural economics at UC Davis in Northern California, thinks these migrant and food processing workers are too often overlooked. And these are among the poorest, most vulnerable people in the country, and we really are relying on them. We always do, and now they're in the news. Those are low-wage jobs, and it's hard work. Hardworking people with low-wage jobs who we rely upon. It's an all-too-often invisible group of people who are now becoming very visible for all-too-often neglected reasons, like high-exposure jobs with subsequently high risk of catching and spreading the virus, limited or no access to quality health care, and higher rates of unemployment, homelessness, and hunger. People in the food shelf industry would tell you they've never been really invisible. Tiki Brown works at the intersection of poverty and nutrition with the Minnesota Department of Human Services, where she's Director of Community Economic Opportunity and Nutrition Assistance. Our food shelves are a barometer of what's happening with our local economy. We have over 3 million visitors to our 350 food shelves across the state every year. And so food shelves really are an indicator of pressure that families are facing. And so that's why they're a barometer. They really have that day-in, day-out, real-life, real-time indication of what's happening in our state. Yeah, I I do think that that is a a barometer. Adair Mosley is the president and CEO of Pillsbury United Communities, a 140-year-old community assistance organization based in Minneapolis. Amongst other outreach efforts, it runs a low-income grocery store, two food shelves, and two cafes. Over the past month, he says their volume has doubled. The virus has exposed our food insecurity. Because if people are asking for that basic necessity around food, I think it, it shows the level of vulnerability and insecurity that's resting in our communities. We're seeing individuals come from all over our region to access our food. And if an individual or family is taking that track, right, to be able to access this basic necessity. I do think that it is something that shows that entrenched vulnerability in our community. It's a very humbling experience to be able to show up on the doorsteps and say, I need food. A point worth making here. Overall, in the United States, both our food supply and rate of consumption haven't changed much. What has changed is what we mentioned before. We're eating at home more and eating out less. 
our hyper-specialized food processing and distribution system has yet to adapt to the scale and scope of that unprecedented shift. But for many countries in the world, it's much more basic than that. Not enough food to begin with. Period. Earlier this week, the United Nations warned of possible famines in dozens of countries. Without stepped-up relief efforts, the number of hungry people worldwide could double by year's end. For many of us, that scale is hard to fathom. It's easy to find such projections overwhelming or write them off as insoluble. But as I interviewed people across the food chain and across the country, I didn't come across that kind of pessimism. On the contrary, I came across people like Pasquale Presa, an Italian immigrant who runs a pizzeria just three blocks from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Like many restaurant owners, he's had to cut staff and adapt his menu for carryout. But even though his business is down 30 to 40 percent, he feels strongly about helping others. I, you know, delivered pizzas to the laboratories that are working on the COVID-19. I delivered pizzas to, you know, the North Clinic where they were they're doing the testing, you know, the swabs. I mean, to me, it's important to pay back with a piece of bread that people would appreciate. You know, right now, you know, people are scrambling. So no one knows what to do. And for me, deep inside me, it brought me back to when I grew up in a small town where my parents used to give, you know, and help people out. This pandemic seems to be bringing a lot of people back to that bumper sticker that was so popular years ago. Think globally, act locally. All along the food chain, you'll find countless examples of altruism and innovation that are nothing short of inspiring. People in Chicago converted their little free libraries into little free pantries. The Hope Breakfast Bar in St. Paul, not just delivering free meals to anyone who needs them, but being overwhelmed by donations and volunteers. The Sassy Cow Creamery in central Wisconsin opened a kindness cooler of free milk. The list goes on and on, and recognizing this list as important, as a goldmine of ideas, folks at the Milken Institute's Center for Public Health decided to document all the innovation. The motivation behind it was that we felt there was a really big need for this consolidated source of information to monitor these responses. Nieti Shah is an associate director at the center. And we see a couple big benefits, including that it provides that comprehensive overview of the actions and responses being taken. It allows organizations to understand the opportunities and how to best collaborate on responses around COVID-19. And most importantly, looking to the future, it creates a historic record of how the food system responded and can help us both move into the recovery phase and ideally inspire other people to take action as well. It means anyone along the food chain looking for ideas can download the database. Or if they have an idea they think might help others, they can add it to the database. For example, Pasquale, who runs the pizzeria, created a video on his Facebook page showing customers how to line up, socially distance, sanitize, and pick up their carryout pizzas in the safest way possible. That idea could go into the database. So could Little Free Pantries and Kindness Coolers. I opened this podcast saying most food stories start on farms. But where do they end? Well, at the most basic level, with stomachs that are either full or empty. 
Kelly Kunkel works with a lot of those empty stomachs. She's a health and nutrition educator with the University of Minnesota Extension Program. She works with a lot of folks on SNAP, or Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, what used to be called food stamps. Well, certainly we're seeing more families using services that they've never tapped into before. Things like SNAP or WIC or even the food shelf. Um, Maybe they haven't tapped into it before because they haven't needed it, or maybe they've not tapped into it before because of the stigma that's involved in using the services, even though there shouldn't be, um, because there's no shame in wanting to feed your family. If you or anyone you know is not getting enough food, there is help available. You can reach out at either the county or state level, usually either through the Department of Health or the Department of Social Services, Here in Minnesota, you can visit hungersolutions.org or call the Minnesota Food Helpline. Here comes the number at 1-888-711-1151. We'll put those resources on our website. Another resource can be you. If you have more food than you need, please pass it along to those who don't have enough. We're all part of the food chain. This podcast is a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. For more information on coronavirus, as well as some links we highly recommend, visit our website at sph.umn.edu. You can also subscribe to this series, Health in All Matters, in Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to check out that list of food chain innovations compiled by the Milken Institute, either go to their website or just Google Food Response Inventory. You'll find it. Today is April 24th, 2020, and the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases worldwide is roughly 2.8 million. Thanks for listening, and take good care of each other.